are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 88 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you BitGo Exaggerate Insurance Coverage, Tokenized Equity and Securities Tokens, Tokenized Securities, I don't know what they are. We'll talk about that and much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I, of course, am your host, CGP, also known as Colin Platt, um, but Petra doesn't like that. Uh, Simon is nowhere to be found. I don't know where Simon went. Uh, I think somebody put him to work, finally. Um, I've replaced him, however, with five, one, two, three, four, five fantastic guests, all of them, of course, speaking in a personal capacity and not representing that of their employers uh, or anybody else for that matter. I'm so, representing my employer. Who I'm an investor in. Um, <laughs> I'm joined by Michael Coletta, lead blockchain architect at London Stock Exchange Group. Hello. Thanks for having me. Also, Stefan Loesch, managing partner at Lexbyte. Hello. Noel Akinson, editorial producer at Coindesk. Hello, everyone. Vic Arushendran. Got it. COO and co-founder at Nivora. Hey. And the one and only Rick Borton, the CEO of Balance, of which I'm investor. <laughs> Thank you for disclosing that. <laughs> Let's get on with the news. First up this week, ooh, this is a big one. We had a big chat about this the, the, this company and uh, the CEO of this company. Underwriter claims crypto custodian BitGo exaggerated insurance coverage. So for those that don't know, uh, BitGo is one of the underwriters behind BitGo. It's $100 million cryptocurrency insurance has accused the company of exaggerating claims of their coverage. Uh, this came from Coindesk. Thank you very much for the, the group that brought us that. Well, um, really interesting thing because obviously custodians are very important in institutions eventually coming into this. One would hope that we eventually get things right. So this is a, a pretty serious charge. Um, can I kind of kick us off? Who are BitGo? What do they do? Uh, where did the, the founders of that come from? Rick, if I can start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, I stumbled through the BitCo company in 2014 when they were just getting started, a few guys in an office, and I was doing a bit of design for them. So I have a bit of perspective on their founding story, and I've kind of followed the company ever since. And uh, Mike Belshi is an extremely hardcore engineer. I think he worked on several pieces of internet infrastructure, like uh, HTTP 2.0 and SPDY. And those are like serious bits of kit. And, um, and I believe, uh, you know, he assembled a pretty amazing team around him who have gone on to do lots of interesting things in the industry. And so it's kind of with that bias that I look at the various actions of BitGo. And I think that what this speaks to is just how hard it is to build a really great custodian and to manage these different variables around insurance, security, and communication. I really don't think there's anything malicious here. It's likely just they thought they had a better deal than they had, or it's, it's just a kind of uh, a miscommunication with PR and like a miscommunication with your custodians and the people providing the insurance. Um, you know, BitGo has had some pretty interesting things where it was about to buy a big physically settled custodian and then it didn't. And some of the lead engineers have left. And there's been, you know, it's gone through a lot of a lot of change in order to. But uh, ultimately, there are also rumors of them partnering with Goldman Sachs and doing all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, at, at their core, they've managed to deliver a multi-sig wallet, which has provided backbone infrastructure to a ton of exchanges. They've been really successful in that endeavor. And I know how hard it is to build a business in this industry. And I have a huge amount of respect for the way they've done it. So solid tech, um, possibly using ambiguous language to describe this coverage. Uh, Noel, what can you tell us about that? Well, I totally agree with Richard that there's nothing untoward going on here, in my opinion. I mean, BitGo has a very good reputation, and no way are they going to intentionally mislead users, especially when it's really easy to read the small print. And Colin, you at 11 Netus, you know probably better than most that in insurance, it's in the small print. I personally think that it's unreasonable for an underwriter of any level to expect the people that they work with to include every single 
causality and condition in the actual marketing document. Effectively, what we're talking about here is a marketing document, and whether it was misleading or not is open to interpretation. Of course, I'm joined by three excellent people who happen to work with the small print. What do you guys think about this? Um, well, you know, just to chime in um, and, and full disclosure, I, you know, I worked with uh, Bitco in the past and in, in a past life at CME Group when we were uh, working on the Royal Mint Gold project, uh, for which Bitco was the actual provider of the underlying blockchain, right? And they had a completely pragmatic approach to, um, at the time in 2015, right, into how you would implement a um, kind of your early version of tokenized asset representation. Um, I think, you know. Regarding the, the fine print, um, the experience that I've had, right, uh, working on digital asset custody in the past and previous job is that the insurance coverage, right, and the kind of defining the what is blockchain, what is private key management, like what are the physical security procedures that you un- that, that you undergo, right, the, describing the risk that, that is being insured is a very difficult task. So to me, it's no surprise, right, that maybe some technicality would come up here. Um, I would also underscore that, you know, the understanding Bitco's kind of foundational model and how the, you know, how keys are kept and how they actually really put a lot of thought into how they custody the kind of with their multi-sig model, right? And how they implement that. I think, um, you know, it, this is just a technicality and it, it just speaks to the difficulty of ensuring and understanding the risk profile of digital assets and specifically cryptocurrency in general, right? For insurance companies and even for banks, right? Yeah, I would, <clears throat> I would say the, the same. It's like, um, if you insure the cold storage, you should be covering a big part of the risk anyway because, well, I mean, the hot wallet, you manage it, yeah, but you obviously don't have uh, that much money um, in your hot wallet. So, yes, it's less insurance coverage, but it's not necessarily a big a big deal. Maybe you need to hold a bit more capital or whatever against it. Um, what I found a bit more interesting, what it actually said is there's no cover for any loss of sensitive information resulting from the generation, transportation, or transaction phases of the private key uh, lifecycle. Now, the interesting question is when the key is used in the wild, how do you know where it's lost? Do they only cover you when actually someone physically broke in and stole the thing? Um, but if no one really quite knows why the key has been lost, well, they're just going to could say, oh, it just happened at the generation phase and you didn't pay attention. And um, and maybe that. So that's more the issue that I would have with this particular thing. But I don't think it's a disclosure thing. It's more like, well, we need to figure out what are the proper insurance contracts that we need to have um, for, for custody. And ultimately, they should audit the procedures and probably should ensure the whole life cycle. So this is more the thing that I would be worried about, that is not ensuring the full life cycle, and then at the end you don't really know whether you're covered because you don't know when the key has been stolen. I would, I would ask the question of that life cycle, how much of it is under BitGo control? So generating keys, um, transportation and transaction, are they actually under BitGo control? Because if they're not in certain circumstances, then they have no need to uh, have insurance coverage on there. Additionally, I would ask the question, why only one out of 10 of the underwriters are are questioning the insurance policy? And in addition to that, BitGo presumably have got legal advice on how they've written the policy. So they must have some sort of reasoning behind it. But at the end of the day, um, who has never written an ambiguous policy? Well, it's not even the policy that's in question. It's a marketing document. They're accusing BitGo of misleading the public by not including every single little detail in a marketing document, which, let's face it, how many of us would read it even if they did? 
well, whether you read it or not and whether it's there or not are two very big I'd big read questions. it if I lost my fans. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, I, I think there's an interesting thing here, which is, is kind of novel with the, the notion of private keys in, in digital assets versus, you know, when you go back, if somebody stole a piece of paper, you immediately know that's happened and when that's happened or more or less when that's happened. But I think as Stefan brought up, if something's stolen, you could kind of argue that it was stolen at some point in the past because there may not be any proof of it. Somebody may have randomly guessed at your private key or Whoa. stole it at a different stage of the life cycle than where you are. I, I suppose that's exactly why you know you implement certain things like which are difficult for a lot of companies to implement, and to a degree, right, is becoming more simplistic. As and I see your your sticker here, Trezor, right? Uh, HSMs, right? Hardware security modules. The the only way that you can practically guarantee that a private key would have never been exposed to anybody is to have it completely contained in a hardware security module, right? It's a very specific, very techy thing. Generated right? on the module, never leaves Inside it. the module, and basically nearly next to near impossible for you to in any way use electron microscope to access the underlying key. Now, it's not even the key that's usually there. It's I won't even get into the technical implementation of how it's done. But the point <laughs> is, um, you know, HSMs are kind of at the core. Now, uh, you know, in the early days, a lot of these... Um, the crypt. The, the problem is the complexity of implementing the crypto libraries that you need uh, for an HSM uh, to use the elliptic curve encryption that's used in things like Bitcoin, because they're trying to get around the, the entire thing is based on the paranoia of the the elliptic curves that are publicly available, right? And these are redeveloped curves. Um, you know, there's a lot of custom, very expensive development you need to do. So um, I think the tools now are finally maturing to the point where we can be assured the private key has never been stolen and is never accessible. But there always comes down to some sort of trust in the end. I mean, how do I know that you didn't do something with it yourself just to get the extra? I mean, that's always that. Yeah, I think the insurance company ultimately should, finally, when they understand the technology, they should insure the whole chain. So I don't think the hot versus cold is the issue. You can say, well, okay, I insure only the cold, but along the whole chain, because this also means, well, I ordered security procedures, I trust in them. I sort of have my view on on what it is, and this is where we should get to. But, well, it is hard, right? I mean, I looked at the problem myself uh, and said, look, can I get insurance coverage? Talk to a few people and insurance, uh, yeah, maybe. It's, it's hard. You, it's a learning process. Another way I like to think about this is we are seeing what happens when you introduce a financial system that's not reversible. Uh, that's just a very kind of new mental model. Um, our entire kind of economic system has been built up on the idea that I can send a transaction and then complain to my bank and reverse that transaction. And when you've got mechanisms that just can't do that, we've kind of got a much higher bar for engineering, a much higher bar for kind of systems and a much higher bar for security, uh, among many other things. Yeah, I have a view on this. I think we're not going to get there. I think we're going to have multi-sig where most of, pe- most of the people will just hold their keys in kind of reversible transactions because I think for the average grandmother, it's just not, there, there needs to be a way of getting stuff back and you can't have assets permanently lost. And in any case, when you represent, I mean, fine, a Bitcoin can be lost forever, but ultimately if you have a, a piece of real estate and it's tokenized and you lost the private key while well, it's somehow going to be reassigned to a new private key because otherwise this piece of real estate that is sitting somewhere in the real world suddenly doesn't have an and, owner and anymore. And that's why I think tokenized securities are the most enormous waste of time and energy I've ever seen. Vic, Vic, what do you, th- what oh, do you oh think, Vic? I mean, you've actually, oh you've, actually, you've actually created tokenized securities. What do you think about the reversibility issue? Um, well, I mean, this is why we have 
key custodians. You have a key custodian because you're paying a custodian to custody your keys. If something goes wrong, they're responsible for ensuring that whatever is written on this record, whether it's a, a distributed ledger or a centralized system, whatever is recorded on there is accurate and true. Um, in terms of what we've done at Navora, we were able to issue one of the world's first legally compliant security tokens. I say security tokens, please don't hold me to the order of these words. Um, <laughs> because I don't even know what it means sometimes myself. Um, Depends well, who's asking. Can, can we exactly. talk that debate, actually? Well, so the, the two ways to order that, obviously, as I as alluded to, was securities tokens and tokenized securities. Okay. Does anybody know what the difference is? I believe I, I, I'm going to take a stab Whoa. at this. Actually, I actually wrote something about this recently. Security tokens are a new type of asset that have the qualities and characteristics of securities, but it is something totally new, whereas tokenized securities is a blockchain version or something yeah. that already has I existed. I call those share tokens. So like when you invest in Uniswap, you receive share tokens that are part of an on-chain business. What's Uniswap? Uniswap is a exchange system that allows you to uh, basically earn fees for contributing your assets to the system. And the really cool thing about this is it's an entirely on-chain business opportunity and uh, it's exploding right now. So let, can I just chime in here? So, um, you know, you know, by, by day I work for the, the London Stock Exchange. Um, <laughs> by night? By night. <laughs> by night. By night. He's a Uniswap liquidity provider. You can find me on my uh, Xiaomi electric scooter. Uh, <laughs> No, so as I wrote it, tokenized, here today, tokenized. No, um, to me, there is absolutely no. Just it's, it, it actually sounds kind of ridiculous to me. Look, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. All, all. Well, let me just finish, right? So ultimately, what do you you know think of it this way, right? It's a secure. What is it legally, right? It's a security. Uh, the technology concept you're using to <clears throat> represent this is a token. Oh, I couldn't disagree right? more. It, so how? Then, okay. Yeah. So security tokens and all these things are just pointers to real-world assets where you need the government to enforce them or a ridiculous multi-sig where you're going to kind of get them put yeah. back into someone else's wallet, right? Whereas if Hayden dies and the government disappears, you can still own your share tokens in Uniswap. Well, that is a, what a value is difference. your asset going to have if the government disappears? Well, it, as long as Ethereum doesn't disappear, it's going to have plenty of value. But it's going to be the uh, share token. I mean, no, no, no. You, see, this, to... is, this is why I think that you are all misunderstanding what's going on here. I don't is think that so. You're trying to put PDFs on the internet, okay? And what's actually happening is there are entirely new digitally native on-chain businesses like Uniswap and Maker. And when you own a piece of them, the entire mechanism is on-chain. So you can't go to a government and say, hey, uh, I want Maker to issue me my share tokens to another thing. It's just not possible. It's all enforced and all the revenue and everything happens on chain so hold on so let's be clear about what it means to record a security so at the moment you've got the existing clearing systems you deposit an instrument in there there's a physical document that goes into a common depository you record the beneficial ownership in a dematerialized register on the csd and that gets distributed to the investors this is the traditional system you can write a legal document which gives beneficial and legal entitlement to an instrument and then you can record this not the legal document not the pdf or anything you can record this on a register on a decentralized infrastructure. Yes. And you can do that in a legally compliant way. That's not about recording yeah. a PDF on, a, on any kind of system. That's more about creating a legal structure which gives ownership of something and recording it on some type of technology. Yes. Um, I don't necessarily think this argument about security tokens versus tokenized securities is really that important. Oh, I, think like really I think it's the most important debate we could be having. I think it's a bit of a red herring, personally. Yeah. <laughs> I think what we've got, are, there, are, there is one world of securities, and you can record a security on a type of technology infrastructure. How that's governed is a yes. different question. Then you could also potentially create different types of instruments 
on a blockchain or on a distributed ledger. And we can call those something different, maybe utility tokens or whatever it is. But I think we've got to separate the world of securities versus all the other types of things well, you can do. Well, you're, crucially, you're missing the business activity that is beginning to emerge on Ethereum. And that is what is unique and emergent, whereas what everyone else is trying to do is paste the old system onto a blockchain. And it's not working very well. You can all admit it, right? My returns are way better than all of yours. And that's because I'm investing in the new and the novel, and you're investing in the old and the sturdy. I agree with Richard on this. I'm totally with him because I do believe that the innovation going forward will come from these security tokens rather than the tokenized securities. I mean, it's very much like putting a magazine on the internet and considering that innovation versus going into the whole new regime of internet-linked objects and that's Snapchatting. It. And Can I pause here? <laughs> Tesla shares on a blockchain. However you do it, what is that? Is that tokenized securities, Noel? Yes. Can I just... Yeah, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is this, right? Tesla shares. So so what are these things, right? So let's forget about technology for a second. Tesla shares, what are they? Uh, how do you define them? What, what rights do they confer? Okay. Oh, they confer rights that look like a security. Uh, what technology system am I using? A database, a blockchain. It doesn't matter, right? So then we just say it's tokenized if we're using a blockchain to represent the data, but it's still a security, right, in the national sovereign law interpretation of what you're looking at. And the reality is, right, that government and national sovereignty and companies' law kind of dictate how companies can be incorporated and, and they kind of they put in place certain protections right around con- uh, market stability, market integrity, consumer protection, transparency. Right? These principles are kind of upheld by these systems. those principles are really boring. And that's like a very condescending way, well, a condescending way of talking to us. I mean, like, let me put it to you this way. Well, <laughs> is that what is emerging is some new founders can start entirely digital services, which are entirely digitally native. And that if they were to pass away or pass on, they're going to live without them. And that's what I think is truly amazing and unique about Ethereum and wasn't possible five years ago. Well, if you're trying to own companies as well if the founder no, passed away the company no, so what's the doubt no it does not in the same way what, in a kind of doubt? digitally unstoppable system that has never existed before what was the DAO is that different from a Tesla share it's very different from a Tesla share okay because that was an on-chain disaster and that, okay <laughs> there we go <laughs> okay. like uh, no, and, and these experiments have re- yielded enormous failures but finally we're starting to see the green shoots of this working when you own MKR you are owning a piece of a distributed autonomous organization where if every single member of the MKR team was to pass on immediately, if they just had a kind of company party and someone threw a grenade in the middle of it, the MKR system is still going to grow and continue to work. And that, I think, is what is amazing and unique and now possible. And that wasn't possible two years ago. And we don't know where this is going. That's part of the most exciting thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just getting started. Yeah. So what I'm much more interested in is let's take a synthetic Tesla share that's generated from a swap contract on futures. And this is being done by Universal Market Access Protocol. Now that makes sense because all the activity is on chain and this is just betting on whether Tesla is going to go up or down in value. Today, these things are settled in courts or they're settled with very old computer systems on every 24-hour cycle. And there's this protocol called UMA or Universal Market Access Protocol that is trying to create synthetic everything. So you can get a synthetic S&P 500, a synthetic Tesla share, a synthetic crop but share. it's still a tokenized security. No, no, it isn't. It is a futures contract that is settled on Ethereum. Yeah, and whatever. Occurs, but it's, sort of, it's, it's the same... Uh, no, it isn't. Because when they ship this thing, it can't be stopped. And but, that is what is unique. Well, but but again, Tesla but the, goes away. All it's of done, you it's cannot done. wrap your heads around this because you're used to things no, being no, stoppable. No, 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 no. And no, no, now no, no. they're unstoppable. And that's a Fire no, really, really important change. Fire emoji. Can I... Michael? No, no. I, yeah, I would say, look, um, look, yes, they're unstoppable in this decentralized system. But remember, you know, 
it's not about what I mean, like, because I personally would love to see that you know, um, you know this kind of perfect decentralized system. It's not perfect. Okay, this ideal self-regulating decentralized system work. But the thing is, is that the reality is, it is it's, working. It's just, okay, it's working. But I'm just saying that the moment it becomes systemically important and has all this value, it's just, it's natural that a government, the authorities that oh, yeah. want to control things will want to wrap regulation around it. And, Absolutely. They, will, and they will apply the exact same principles. But they're going to wrap, they will contr- no, no, they're, they're will- wrap regulation around it the same way they wrap regulation around Bitcoin, where they serve Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't serve it. And it's I very, mean, very just, different. I'm just speaking to, look, all I'm saying is, right. They can't stop I'm, Bitcoin. They tried to get Katie Hound to go in and stop Bitcoin. That was her mission when she left Washington and went to San Francisco. And she came back and she goes, I can't do that. Well, they so can't then they stop. had to write yeah, some new regulations. No, no, no. Of, course, of course I agree. I'm, but they could stop, right, you interacting with the banking yeah. system, right, yeah. to, to buy Bitcoin. I mean, so... I'm not, look. When the big banks figure out that Maker is doing precisely what they do, which is taking in assets and printing dollars out of thin air, they are going to have a heart attack. And when they find out they can't stop it, it is going to blow their minds. I, I don't think JP Morgan's worried, to be honest. Not yet, no. They're printing they, them themselves. Excellent discussion. And I think this bleeds us really well into the next question. Or the next story, actually. Again, from Coindex. You guys have been doing great work this We've week. We've been busy. Been very busy. Swiss stock exchange, SIX, will tokenize equities on R3's core of blockchain. The goal of the SDX is to create a regulated exchange platform for digital assets. We're going to talk about that. Uh, starting with stocks and exploring other tradable instruments, and even growing to encompass tokenized versions of more esoteric physical assets, such as fine art. What do we think about this? I think it's a, definitely a step in the right direction. Why? Um, from my point of view, um, I think we're looking at bringing new technology into mainstream investment banking, and it's definitely a step in the right direction. They're talking about joint efforts, um, issuing new types of instruments. Questionable, in my opinion, whether to use Corda or not, but otherwise, it's definitely a positive outcome. And also, shout out to the guys from Custo Digit. I think that in the last bear run, we had blockchain, not Bitcoin, as our complete massive failure. And I think this is uh, tokenized securities is the current one we've got in our, our current bear market. Like all this stuff, just use a database. Like you don't need a blockchain for what you're trying to do. We have all these amazingly fast, highly redundant replicated systems. Like blockchains are there to enable emerging economic primitives that were not possible before. It is about inventing something new, not about patching up the old. Well, I think you can do a bit of both. No, you have um, to focus. Well, you, you do your stuff. Other people do other stuff. That's fine. You'll make a lot of money in the short term, but these, these new founders are going to make fortunes in the long term. Yeah, maybe. But I'm, I'm personally more excited about how it can help the old world, how you can extend the investable universe, how you can invest into real-world assets, but how you can bring the costs down, I'm, how you I'm can more, make the system, the current system, more But But why, more are we, why are we even focusing on that? Loads of people in developed countries have tons of money. What we should be much more interested in is how do you bring a stable currency, a savings account, and the ability to participate in capital markets to the 4 billion people who have no access well, to that? Because it exactly does this if you... No, it doesn't. Settle things. Of course, if you settle if you're, things on the blockchain. Are, if you, if have, you are trusting CEOs who get out of bed at 10 a.m. in the morning, saunter into some bank and go to a, a top-level fucking penthouse suite, it is not going to get done. It is going to get done by hustlers on the ground, building open source tools and distributing them as quickly as possible. I think, That's firstly, I think. 
I think firstly, the topic of financial inclusion is a lot wider than the use of blockchain. Blockchain doesn't solve, solve financial inclusion. That's totally a very, agree. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad we agree on that because definitely it's, it's something which is very important to the growth of e econ economies worldwide. So it's super definitely. important. How we use different types of technology like a blockchain need to be explored in detail. So yeah. glad to hear that. Um, I think suggesting that CEOs wake up at 10 a.m., CEOs who run global financial institutions and or corporates waking up at 10 and just chilling, uh, I think that's probably not um, accurate. <laughs> to be at the I saw guys who raised a lot of money on the IC. <laughs> Those guys are even worse. To be horrible. Oh, no. Let's not talk about revolt. I haven't said that. It's not me. Sorry, I, think, I, meant, I meant XRP. <laughs> I, I think to make, to make sort of sustainable progress into the future, we need a balance. So some guys are extreme on one side, some on the other, but also a, a meshing I, of both. So I do agree we need a balance. Yeah, the old school using new tech and also new technology and new technologists maybe taking some principles from what was existing in the current system as well. I'd um, like to throw in a question. Sorry, I'd like to throw in a question. Why, why Corda? Does anyone understand the nuance there? Great We've got an ad read that doesn't yeah, tell us exactly why. We've got yeah. phenomenal adverts on this podcast. Well, <laughs> they don't have very good technology. <laughs> oh. I mean, it's a fascinating technology, but why is that better suited? Is it suited? fascinating? Why it's, is it fascinating? Why not? Why not? I mean, I just, I'm like curious. A, I don't know anything about it, so I'm, I'm, I'm just I, I, teasing. Yeah. I mean, I think I, from an enterprise perspective, right, it's pretty popular right, in, in, in the finance arena. It's, it's got arguably right if you if you're going for conventional right it's got java java based right development catlin right um it it was always focused on financial use cases where you know you have hyperledger which was the hyperledger foundation was kind of it's been focused all over the place right and it's kind of owned and run by a variety well not owned and run but you know it's sponsored by a variety of organizations so i think r3 had kind of a narrower focus specific application reusable language right and skill not set not technically a blockchain but inspired by? i think they've now started calling it a blockchain so initially it wasn't um, from our perspective so we've been able to structure legally compliant securities on public decentralized infrastructure such as bitcoin and ethereum uh, we don't necessarily think that you need to fit a private chain into financial services to record assets. Having said that, hmm. I just see this as positive. So the use of Corda or any other type of blockchain to do something mainstream is definitely positive. I think Corda brings certain aspects which ticks boxes for you know, information security and, and other types of deployments in, in finance. So there's definitely a positive there. I know some of the people at Corda as well, I think they've kind of moved or they've evolved their business model over the last two, two or three years in a more, let's say, enterprise way, which makes a bit, bit of sense. I would also think that the main R&D, the key R&D here is actually, um, at least in this classic world of tokenized securities, it's more on the legal side, on the regulatory side, etc. Which technology you use is nice, but I think the technology ultimately is going to be exchangeable. Um, the key difficult thing to sort out is how do you fit the new world into the old world? Um, how do you fit them uh, together? And this is going to be the hard problems to solve. And then I personally think that there's a lot of um, momentum uh, behind the EVM. I mean, if you followed like uh, what happened on Python, how long it took them to get rid of uh, Python 2 and they're still not got rid of Python 2 and uh, whatever. So these standards, once they're established, they have such a power to stay there. My prediction would be that the EVM and Solidity, we're going to have it for a long, long time uh, as a main, uh, as a central basis. Not necessarily in Ethereum, um, but 
yeah, you can just port the EVM uh, onto uh, onto various uh, onto onto various blockchains. They're yeah. open sourcing quarter now, aren't they? I think it, yeah, it's open source. Open source. Yeah. I think digital assets Parts also yeah. Yeah. open source. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they have like an enterprise yeah. model, yeah. right? Yeah. DA is the new one, right, for open source. They're also open sourcing. Yeah. I think it's well, well, in the right direction. <laughs> this Segway. episode is brought to you by R3. Blockchain It's not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reach major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Maybe even securities tokens. <laughs> Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Carta platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application, Firewall. The Corda platform, blockchain for every business, every industry. Head over to r3.com for more information, including some open source code. While we're still on this fire of securities tokens and their validity in the world... Um, our good friends down here in Germany uh, at the finance ministry have called for regulated blockchain securities market. Um, and actually, we've seen BitBonds come up with the first one in Germany. Uh, let's talk about this one, guys. This is a fascinating story from a global regulation point of view. You know, the fact that Germany have come out with plans to have a nation, a national stance on this and encourage the development of tokenized securities on a blockchain. That is fascinating. What I find curious, though, is the European Union stance on capital union. I mean, this is Germany. Fantastic. Let's move it along. But it's not going to be really meaningful until this is rolled across the European Union because security tokens need to cross borders. Otherwise, what is the point? Yeah, but I think the German, I mean, the Germans, the, 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 the shorter thing is like, look, Security tokens, tokenized securities, whatever, are just securities, if they are. And whether they're registered on a blockchain or whatever, who cares? And I think this is a relatively portable stance that you can port across the EU. And you see, I mean, the EU has a number of initiatives in this area as well. And everyone is pretty bullish um, in, this, um, in this area. So I think both Germany and the EU are pretty keen on getting uh, getting things going in this uh, in this area. One of the things I like to focus on is how do you convince someone that your picture of the future is correct? And it is so easy to pitch some of the ideas that the Ethereum community are putting forward in Berlin. And I was kind of wondering why that's the case. And a, and a friend said it's because it's one of the few developed countries in Europe that experienced hyperinflation relatively recently. So they're just kind of one generation removed from having all of their wealth incinerated when you give the government too much power. And that's why Berlin has become a kind of hotbed for blockchain activity. And I remember the days when Ethereum team was pumping everything out in one office and, and getting it built and getting it shipped. And now there's some of the most impactful projects there. And if you're curious about this space, I highly recommend taking a visit there. And so it's great to see Germany recognizing that there's a lot of potential here, but I think they're being distracted by focusing on recording stock market stuff on a blockchain. Chain, which is a complete waste of time. It's also interesting to see Germany. Up, Germany. Yeah, it's also yeah. interesting to see Germany take a sort of more holistic view. They're not in it for the please move your blockchain business to our little island because we need the income. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that is more. Yeah. I think um, the hyperinflation thing is probably a bit overrated. Full disclosure: you are German. Full disclosure: I am German. <laughs> <laughs> um, but German has Germany has an interesting investment market in that. Um, certificates uh, were really, really popular. Yeah, all kind of best of DAX, uh, CAC, uh, whatever, uh, with uh, downside protection, upside protection, whatever. 
And I do think this plays a little bit in this one that Germans like, well, not anymore, but they used to like their uh, their own glasses. Yeah, it was always a stereotype that they have very individualistic glasses and they like very individualistic investments. Where does the affinity for cash come from? Because that also seems to be very much about owning your own money and really kind of remaining in control of the funds. Just because no one accepts tra- credit cards, yeah, this is why you need to have cash. Yeah. Why, why do they not accept credit cards? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a banking no, thing? No, I mean... Switzerland and Austria are very similar, aren't they? From that perspective. How do we get onto this one? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just, I don't know. There was not, I mean, credit cards, Germany, you don't get into debt. Yeah, that's sort of one thing. It's like debt is like, um, it's not a good idea um, generally. But so this is why credit cards are a little bit of an issue. Why there are no payment cards? They actually they are pretty decent and very cheap payment cards. But then a lot of small companies just don't want to deal with them. They prefer to deal with cash, and this is um, why you need cash all the time. And this is why you have cash all the time. And that's sort of how it is. But it it is slowly changing. I don't, I don't think that Germans don't necessarily like cash, but German companies maybe don't like cash, uh, don't like uh, cards, and so that's. Sort of yeah, and this will this will start to get really interesting when we do take steps towards capital markets union, if indeed that ever happens. Can you Again, tell us what capital markets union is? And well, actually, I'm not I'm not quite sure what capital <laughs> markets union. Um, so, so a, f- a few things though. Um, you know, well, generally, uh, generally, right, the approach is to be technologically neutral. So, I mean, generally, the re- you know regulators, governments try in Europe to not specifically call out and mention blockchain. Though this has been a little bit of a trend, right, as we've seen in Luxembourg, France, Malta. The, the, the issue, though, I, I would say this. Um, well, it's a nice step in the right direction of of kind of. I, I think what it does temporarily, at least, is clarify some of the ambiguity. Um, even though maybe it wasn't necessary, right? Like it could have just been achieved another way. Because again, it's always a look through, right? It's what does this like? I'm looking at this concept you have, and I'm I'm certain I could describe it with some words, some legal, some legal definition, and thus it's subject to that. They're providing some comfort, some handholding. Yeah, but then I think where the issue comes in, and, and and no one talks about this, right? Is the moment that you lay financial markets on top of it, completely irrelevant. Like uh, it, it's it's really nice to have, but now. You need a, you need the CSD, right? Because the whole the whole concept here is that you know we're, we're enabling the issuance of these securities, but um, with, with this kind of hope, this aspiration of creating markets, right, and kind of opening up finance to you know individuals, right, in a structured way. I'm looking over here at um, the CEO of Balance, um, and you know it's it's just not achievable, right? Because we we're, we're kind of stuck at this national sovereign CSDR uh, requirement that if if, if you're operating, what does CSDR mean? Sorry, yeah, exactly. I, sorry about that. Um, so essentially, just it essentially requires that if anything's a security, defined defined broadly on this MIFID two definition. What's MIFID two? So uh, I don't know what these so acronyms mean. Whole, yeah, yeah, so it's this whole. Yeah. So it's Central Securities Depository Regulation, CFDR, yes. and MIFID II is the Market Infrastructure Financial Investment Directive? Oh, was Two. that the thing that came in Two. a little year ago and gave a whole bunch of lawyers a lot of money and didn't really do oh, much? Oh, no, 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 that, that's Brexit. I can recommend you a really good book. Um, no, I, 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 suppose, I suppose the problem is right. It doesn't. It it doesn't uh, solve for all the problems because you know the European Union has kind of overarching uh, market rules, right? That that trump the national well not trump but um are kind of sit on top of the national Pence. sovereign no, rules they trump them yeah they trump them to the extent that there's no exceptions except uh, when it comes to capital markets i mean that's still national 
Well, if the EU has made rules, they have dominance. If the EU doesn't have made, didn't make rules, yes, and correct. It tends to be the depository rules tend to be local, whilst a lot of the other stuff hmm. is in the EU. No, but Again, the bottom line is, if you've got a if you've got a security to like a security, right? If it looks like a security and you're putting it on something that is matching buyers and sellers in the EU, then you need a CSD. Like there, I'll boil it down that way. But the CSDs even have different definitions in different countries within the European Union. Uh, the, the EU is quite homogenized in how regulation is enforced. So CSDs locally may vary slightly, but in terms of around Europe, they have to come under the same regulation. Same overall regulation, but the way they operate and the definition and structure of the different individual accounts that is at the moment still national. It, it shouldn't be. I mean, you can't really have full monetary union until you have capital markets union, in my opinion. But that's a whole different debate, which over beers whenever you but want. The thing that they define as a CSD is required. So that, that's so yes. I, I'm yes. still losing it because I can't, I can't do acronyms. So it, it, it's, it's, a, bank, it? it's what, a, what a bank of um, the old world securities. Well, what is, what is a CSD, translate. though? I can Central translate. Securities Depository. It's a bank of oh, okay. securities. So, and then the, the R was the regulatory. I just don't remember. Yeah. I, imagine, I just can't remember acronyms. Imagine the ERC-20 tokens of Ethereum like in a centralized thing. You just said thing, ERC like, holds an acronym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to translate. <laughs> I think ERC is also a problem. I hate DeFi. I hate Dopefi. I hate all these Dopefi is what we're going with here. No, it isn't. So I need to call you the balance. Do I need to call you the? Do I need to call you the balance chief executive officer as well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, just certain. Just because new terms um, I struggled to learn doesn't mean you need to uh, make a kind of point about CEOs. Um, but good attempt. <laughs> Carry on. So can I ask you guys a question about like I think fundamentally where our disagreement comes back to is. You guys over here, I, I'm, I'm looking in the, the direction of people working with securities tokens, um, tokenized securities, whatever we want to call them. Um, their rules, we need to figure out how to work within those rules versus yeah. talking about well, well, over here. My, my point is not that these people changed. aren't going to make fortunes doing this. I think they're all going to you know, print money from enterprise licenses, and that's great. It's that I think the kind of step function change, all the real opportunity, the kind of you know, like 1,000x returns are going to be from hunting down of unique on-chain businesses that deliver real value and getting in early. That's so what I think. Can, can I say that there is somewhat of a divide of the rules are going to continue as they are or the rules are going to change? I just think that there's a new system that's going to need a whole new set of rules, and it's going to be built up for a good 10 years before it's of a size that really matters to the renewable regulators. And that's when we can worry about regulation more seriously, is when the numbers in this system matter. So vive the Wild West. Yeah, I, actually, I agree. I mean, I agree with you completely. I mean, and I, I'm not... I can't believe it. What? I mean, I agree with the, that, that once the numbers kind of add up, then regulation happens, right? So, and that, you know, some new system will emerge. I, I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to predict... What or how? I, I still fail to see the big volume of all the on-chain on stuff because what you mentioned before is effectively, well, you have a future on Tesla, fine, but it's ultimately it's still Tesla. It's an off-chain, it's an off-chain thing. Yeah, CryptoKitties is completely on-chain. So absolutely CryptoKitties. Uh, CryptoKitties no is not completely on-chain. It's just a pointer to an image. That's why I don't like it. Yeah. Okay. I love CryptoKitties. You, you could put it uh, completely on-chain. But Tesla is always in the real world. So Actually, it's not. It, there's uh, Tesla futures can be syn fully synthetic, on-chain settled, and um, can work yeah, But way. they're That's still what, settling against something in the real world. No, they're not. They're settling against people betting each other on the price. That's how a swap contract works. Yeah, but if works. Tesla goes away, it's, it goes away. And if you haven't I agree. And at that point, yeah, the price the, of what? The price goes, yeah. or the future the, goes to how zero. How is the price created? Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. So sure. someone just calls that's, it that's Tesla. The underlying, the underlying the of real no, no, the margin the methodology contract is very different from an actual underlying security. Super different. Super interesting discussion, and I think we need to continue this 
over beers um, after the podcast. Um, Vic has to run, unfortunately, though. <laughs> Stories we did not have time to cover this week, however. From the block crypto.com, North Korean cyber attackers have stolen as much as $670 million in fiat and crypto. Fiat and crypto. Does anybody know how much in crypto and how much in fiat? <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, the second one, our good friends over at IBM cut credit union deals for blockchain services, $1.7 trillion industry. And again, from our good friends at Coindesk, really on fire this week, owners of the Burj Khalifa have plans for an ICO. I won't be buying that one. <laughs> <laughs> My friend jumped off the Burj Khalifa with his kite. Oh, he was okay. Talk about burying the lead there. Um, he's okay. <laughs> yeah, he survived. It's a good video. If you check Nick Jacobson Burj Khalifa jump, you can see him jumping off with his kiteboard and landing in the sea and riding away. That's cool. I'm, I'm glad he Dear rode God. away. Hopefully, without any broken. Again, you can arms sort of hear me. the music in the wait, background. Wait, wait. Is the Burj Khalifa the hotel on the sea or not? No. It's oh, the I'm an idiot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I mean as you all think already, I'm a complete idiot and I got the wrong building. <laughs> Actually, we, we, we thought that you were really good at tweeting this week. You were you were our tweet of the week. Oh, that's very kind. How does that feel? Um, I think it feels like nepotism and you should choose a different tweet. Actually, we chose this before we knew you were in London. <laughs> and I, I, I wrote on our Slack, hey, Pat, this is our tweet of the week. And Simon chimed in and said, oh, by the way, do you know Rick's in? He's supposed to be coming to a presentation I'm giving. But instead, you're here with us. So why don't I let you read your tweet of the week? It's the Tweet of the Week. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, this chimes in very well into the debate we've been having. So the tweet is, I think the next boom is going to be driven by synthetic assets and a ridiculous amount of leverage. The last period of mania was induced by morons believing that that lots of fat protocols would have any utility. In this depression people are creating much more potent systems. And so to unpack that a little bit, um, you know, the the boom of 2017 was this idea that that we'd have fat protocols and these utility tokens would be really valuable. And that's just proven to be, you know, a false claim. Um, And and what's being built right now are these incredible kind of credit systems and these on-chain businesses and um, these uh, synthetic contracts that track stocks, bonds, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. And, um, and, and these things are unstoppable. Uh, and I think that as a result, there's a whole bunch of people I know who are kind of playing around with leverage for the first time, getting used to these tools, because now they can get it all on Ethereum. And so when the next bull run comes and they're pulling more and more dollars out of their ETH and sinking it into more and more different assets, it's going to be absolutely biblical. Uh, and I'm fascinated to see how this all pans out, but it's probably going to end in a big mess. I, I, I generally think when leverage gets involved, it ends in a mess. Yeah, <laughs> ending in a big mess is always a good prediction. I mean, this is yeah. But we'll have question a new, is when we just need a new low watermark, right? So I just hope that we have a high watermark that's a hundred times as high, and then a new low water that's ten times as high as where we are now. So when you say boom, do you mean boom or bubble? Uh, well, what's the difference? Well, one goes pop and the other one just goes up. Yeah, I mean, I think the crypto has always gone through a boom-bust cycle and the new low watermark for talent, the new low watermark for kind of code committed, the new low watermark for price is always about 10 times higher. So I'm excited for everything to go up another 100 times and then drop down 10 times. And just, is, and just from the amount investment of, advice, by the way. And just from the amount of work <laughs> yeah. that's going on in the sector, I mean, all of us around the table, we spend our days doing this, and we are joined by many very, very smart people doing the same. I mean, that is a sign that this is 
perhaps not the height of the bubble that we used to have, but it's not going away. I didn't know any of my friends were going to like play around with leverage until Maker came along. And now almost everyone I know is playing with leverage. That does not feel like a very good like uh, idea uh, if, if everybody gets into that. But it certainly feels like something that's a new behavior. And I get to pick up on it a little earlier because so many of my friends are at the cutting edge of Ethereum and other technologies. What happens when interest rates normalize? What does that mean? Yeah, like <laughs> interest, rate, interest rates for you know borrowing anything in the real world, traditional like securities through bonds are like very very low, like two percent on ten year, mm. negative in Germany in in real terms. Um, at some point, yeah. like they're going to go back to five six percent. What happens with what are we paying on maker yields? I think three and a half percent right now. What was it last week? Two uh, percent. Okay, what was it the week before? Half percent. They, they, right. right now, we are still figuring out as a community how to govern the interest rates of the system and uh, not getting it right. Uh, there, there's lots of things that need to be fixed. But Maker is introducing a brand new system called multi-collateral die, and one of the big levers they're going to have to pull on that is the die savings rate. I'm really excited about this because if it works, it means you can store die and earn a kind of two to three percent savings rate on your money, which would be phenomenal. And it gives them a kind of another lever to pull in the ginormous and fascinatingly intricate mechanism that is the MakerDAO. Okay, so two questions on that about the MakerDAO. Um, where is that interest coming from? Who's paying it? Um, it is coming from the people who take out loans. Um, so say you put in $200,000 of ETH and you take uh, 100000 die out of the system, you currently pay 3.5% every year on that. And so the system generates hash flows or cash flows and those flow around to the maker holders. Those maker holders are then going to vote on what kind of interest uh, they would like to pay to die savers. And I think it's going to start at 1% just to see how things go and then we'll go from there. And what do people do when they take out loans and die? Well, what I do is I buy all the assets that everyone tells me um, are not going to go up, and uh, and then they do, and then I sell them. Okay, so speculative. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so second question: You talked about multi-collateral, so. For those that are not familiar with those terms, what does that mean? Yeah, so today Maker is a system that ingests Ether and spits out DAI. So it takes in a volatile asset and it spits out a stable one. Um, and it does that by consuming a price feed and then and in putting that into a set of smart contracts that runs on Ethereum. And it's probably one of the most advanced projects running on Ethereum right now. And, and so far, it's really found kind of what I like to call protocol market fit, where 1% of the users are folks like myself who have a bit of ETH and they want to get some leverage. And 99% of the users are folks uh, who are uh, kind of looking to get hold of a stable coin and, and kind of hold their money in a stable asset on Ethereum. And, and, and this is super interesting because we're starting to see a kind of finally a killer piece of infrastructure built on Ethereum that is not just some random shitcoin. So PFM, my hat on, this sounds a whole lot like a central clearing counterparty and what they do. What? Maker. Maker. I mean, essentially, um, you throw in your collateral, whatever you got laying around, and you say, hey, I want to go in and I want to play on the derivatives market. Yeah, except how are they doing that? I mean, because you were, you were talking about um, the, the kind of the, the adjustments you were paying in, in, the, in the rate, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, a, a CCP has an entire set of quants that are focused on a specific... Sorry, what's a CCP? Central sorry, sorry, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. So... A, because you said clearing. I, I said so clear. clearing. No, no, no I'm sorry. I just don't know any of these terms. I, remember, I've never had a job. I've been fired no, from no. everything I've done, which <laughs> won't surprise any of you. And, and so I don't know any of these I, terms. No, no, I totally appreciate it. Wasn't the, Jack Ma uh, rejected I, I, I from totally McDonald's? I totally appreciate the Right track. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not Jack Ma. <laughs> not yet. I appreciate <laughs> the self-deprecating. Um, so clear it. So they manage risk, right? So this, this thing that manages risk takes people's money, manages risk. It's like a pooled, a pooled thing, kind of what you're describing. So, um, I mean... The core, the core thing is right that a cent, that a, cl, a central clearing counterparty employs quants and 
mathematical experts that are professionals at focusing on how to how yeah. to figure out this risk risk methodology. So I think in in practice, the difference is that they ha- probably have just slightly more talented people that are focused on the same set of problems. I would I would like to put it to you that the people on the maker governance call are the smartest human beings I have ever encountered, and I would highly love I would love you to come on there and give them a good grilling because they love having their system kind of put through the ringer because they've been working on it for four years and they don't want to be wrong. Uh, so I would love, actually, everyone can participate. It's almost like, imagine the Federal Reserve, but it's open and everyone can join. Uh, and so this happens once a week. It's the Maker Governance Call. And I'm sure we can put a link in the show notes. Will you be joining us, gentlemen over here? <laughs> it's possible. Why not? Why not? A bit, bit of fun. Vic, you did, um, weren't when, you doing quant work in a past life? I was a quant in a past life, yes. I, I'm a, I have a PhD in maths, and then I was a quant um, in banking, had a good time. Left because I wanted to do something more. Um, ended up going back into banking because I went bankrupt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he lost his job as well. Because <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to get into tech companies, so I was always working for free, trying to learn and do stuff. And then needed money again. Went back into banking. My old team took me back, and eventually that led to Navora. So um, I was on a very lucky path, to be honest. So can but you? Yeah, give, it was a quant. Give us your impressions as a quant. What are some of the things you'd be thinking about if you were looking at how to set the interest rate on die? Not necessarily the number, but how would you look at that question? Wow, uh, I don't know die in enough detail, um, but on a, on a high level view, um, I think we need to understand firstly from a from a norm, from a let's say traditional point of view, what are the risks associated there? What models are being used, and how those models are being used? How they're being tested? Who's looking at the results? Um, and also, who are taking out these, I don't know, loans? Who's borrowing? That, that is what I'm doing, yes. Yeah. You so, can use um, Basel II, right? It's an equity. <laughs> Wait, what's Basel II? Oh. Yeah, I, actually, I don't even know. That's not an equity. It's uh, actually a city yeah, in Switzerland. <laughs> it's, an, it's, a it's a repo transaction, right? The DAI is a repo. What's you a repo transaction? It's a repurchase agreement. So, okay, let's back up. Basel II is a legal framework that tells banks how much money how they much need to hold against. How much capital they have to hold. And how much yeah. is the capital of the <coughs> repo transaction. So this is the cool thing, is that it's automated uh, the capitalization ratio. So it's, you have to maintain a 150% uh, collateral ratio. And uh, that's quite high. It's a Basel II standardized approach. 150%. So it? it's like a, yeah, it's whatever. Cool. But what are you holding against that 150%? Maker. Wait, it, it, okay. No, no, MKR no. token. No, the MKR you, token is the equity. In, in Basel II, you guys have already accounted for Maker. <laughs> well, you're holding bonds against Basel II, you hold, bank, you hold equity. Okay. MKR is the equity of the Maker. So the rate system. that Maker is using is 150%. Return on equity. Off. Uh, I think it's we're, we're, we're confusing a whole bunch of mental models here that I don't <laughs> understand. Um, all I can say is the MKR token is super interesting because it actually captures the revenue of the system. So the interest payments that go back, so when I pay my loan off, I also pay kind of die on top. So let's take the example of that $100,000 loan. If I paid it off at the end of the year and the kind of average interest rate has been about 3, 3%, um, I would then pay $3,000 of die on top. And this money then flows to a smart contract that ingests Maker and burns it. And so Maker is actually a deflationary token. And it's I like to call, jokingly, it's like a hash flow capturing token where you own a piece of an on-chain business. So when you own MKR, you own a piece of a credit facility. When you own DAI, you have debt. What are, what are the fees? The fees are, um, th- it's about 3.5% a year when you borrow money. So that's, so that's, that's, that's the rate? Yeah, that's the rate, uh, yeah. What if I don't pay back? Uh, if you don't pay back, then you get liquidated. 
Um, so it's an indefinite loan. So as long as you maintain 150% collateralization ratio, it's just an indefinite loan. Can I ask four questions about Maker yes. MKR? Is it an investment of money? Uh, what do you mean by that? Do you put money into it? Absolutely. Is there an expectation of profit from putting that money in? Definitely. <laughs> is, is there an investment of money in Michael's a common screen enterprise <laughs> or a, a, a smart contract that is common to multiple parties? I hope so. All right. Any profit that comes from the effort of this, is it made by promoters or third parties? Oh, you see, now this is where they're clever. They burn the tokens instead of giving you dividends. And so that's the test in which it fails. Technically. So, wait, so Michael- this, wait, wait, so can I just... It, it's like applying for a credit card for... Fifteen hundred pounds and saying, "Well, I'll so I'll accept your fifteen hundred pounds, and in turn, I will lend you. Well, no, I'll, I'll just let you take a thousand back. That is Sorry, not even. Yeah, no, that, that's that's not correct. That's drawing down on collateral. Yeah. No, where's the? Okay. So, so sorry, now what, we're, what we're seeing here, everyone, let's okay, take a simple example. Example. What, what are you borrowing against your four hundred one k? What we're seeing here is the difference between uh, our, our areas of understanding and our areas of misunderstanding. I have yeah. no idea how about how big companies work or how regulation works, That's and fine. these gentlemen are experts. These gentlemen have absolutely no idea how Ethereum works, and that is why I'm an expert. And so we're just approaching the world from very different viewpoints. I, I would disagree. I would kind of disagree. Yeah, as I would well. disagree on the Ethereum. <laughs> I disagree. As well. Yeah, I totally disagree on the Ethereum. Just to be clear, <laughs> at least four people around this table are actively working on Ethereum in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, sure. Um, so but they never use it. I would argue at least five. But, but it I is not. No, I'm it, not. It is not until Does you it, get rejected for investment fifty times, and then you have to make payroll using a CDP. Do you really understand Ethereum's beauty? <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of been there. So just a simple with example. A CDP. Just Here a we go. simple example. Just a simple with example for us. A collateralized debt position. No, I mean, just, yeah, just, <laughs> okay. okay. Sorry, so, so big, big, run with it. <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to simp- a simple example of that. I just, yeah. I genuinely don't understand it. So I just want to understand it. Yeah, sure. Okay. So here's, yeah. here's a simple example, right? I've got $100,000 of ETH and I can either sell that um, and pay the capital gains or um, I can take a loan out against it and I can pay some of my bills. So I could take out maybe $40,000 loan. And, and I've done that uh, because I needed to make payroll. Um, and and that is how I've kept balance alive. So it is, it is kind of obviously got a serious place in my heart where uh, I appreciated this kind of very quick credit facility where if I'd gone to a bank and said, hey, do you mind if I post this ETH as collateral and get a $40,000 loan? Um, that wouldn't have happened. And so it's when you really um, get to use Maker and get to kind of benefit from it that you really start to see the power of the system. Today, it just ingests ETH as the collateral. And that's obviously, you know, hyper volatile, extremely, you know, uh, uh, kind of limited to a very small set of users. And it's just like not a good collateral base. But tomorrow and in the future, it's going to ingest all forms of collateral. And the goal is for it to be the most efficient credit facility ever. So what Bitcoin did to gold, I think the uh, maker will do to credit facilities. And that's why I'm excited about it. And that's why I think it's one of the most interesting on-chain businesses to ever exist. Repo market on-chain, repo banking on-chain. Okay, excellent. Just to remind you all, this podcast is is allowed to exist thanks to the good graces of 11FS. I don't know why they let me join the show every time. They're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We do such things as shilling maker and dumping XRP. Petrit would also like me to remind you that 11FS creates digital propositions in addition to all the cool blockchain things we do, including this podcast. Want to hear more about Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, subscribe to the button. It's just just right there. Just hit that button. If you guys don't do it, then Rick's going to come chill at your house. And if you're already subscribed, then why are we even having this discussion? But you could leave us a review. We understand you might not want to give us a review because, well, we're not shilling XRP. Um, but, you know, give it to us anyways. Or at least tell Petra what you think in an angry email. 
Petrit at 11fs.com. If you like XRP, send him an email. That's being edited out, I guess, right? <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much for this fiery, fiery episode. People, where can they find out more about you? Michael, go. On LinkedIn. Okay, that works. Michael Coletto on LinkedIn. Stefan. Well, I'm on Twitter under my maiden name, Oscar D. Torson. Uh, my name is Richard Burton. And if you find me on Twitter, it's R-I-C-B-U-R-T-O-N. Please feel free to send me a direct message. I'm on Twitter at Noel in Madrid, which is where I live. And of course, don't forget to check out Coindesk for the latest news. I'm on Twitter as well, Vic Arul Chandran, or just check me out at Navora.com. You can also find me on the Twitter, harassing the XRP army at Colin G. Platt. Big thanks to our amazing production team for putting up with us here at 11FS. Petrit is rubbing his eyes in disgust with my <laughs> editing of the show. Our producer, Petrit, of course, Laura, and Alex Woodhouse for dealing with all of this shit afterwards. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week, and goodbye. <laughs>